Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Again, Romans chapter 8. We are moving at a snail's pace through this chapter and for good reason. It has been called the Everest of the Himalayas. It's been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. It's been called the most dense and rich chapter in God's Word. And it almost seems like every verse begs for a multiple week series. And certainly we've pulled the car over a few times to enjoy the view. And with the passage we're in today, that is the case. We're going to be looking again at verses 29 to 30, but we're going to pick up some steam. If you'll notice, the first word of verse 29 is for. That means that that's a subordinate clause, a subordinate phrase. It leans on something else for its meaning. It's explanatory. And it flows right out of Romans 8.28, where we spent some weeks. Romans 8.28, let's read through verse 30. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Many times I've spoken to you about those two most dangerous words in Bible study, in exposition, and in theology, especially related to biblical interpretation. Those two words come after reading a portion of Scripture, and you feel like there must be a footnote. The first word is the word and. An example would be how the Mormons would say, yes, the Bible says that, and the Book of Mormon says this. Or Catholicism, which purports to believe in the words of the Bible and the church's canons, the pope's pronouncements, and the church fathers. Adding something after the word and undermines really the sufficiency of Scripture. It says if Scripture isn't enough, more has to be added to understand the truth of God. It also threatens the exclusivity of Scripture, which alone contains the living word of God. Now, as tragic as that error is, by saying, I know the Bible says that, and we want to add other things, there's another more dangerous error, and I think it's one that we all fall victim to without even seeing it coming. It's the word, but. It's reading a verse, reading a passage, reading a chapter, and saying something like this, I know the Bible says that, but. On no other issue have I heard this devaluing of Scripture then on the issue we come to this morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of predestination. And almost every time that someone has an issue with this, this doctrine, they will read a verse like the one we read today that God predestines some to be conformed to the image of his son. They will say, well, I know the Bible says that, but... And then there's a footnote. The problem becomes when the footnote is something like this. I know the Bible says that, but... That's not what it means. That's troubling. Let's go back to our understanding of God himself. 
Who invented language? Who invented communication? God did. And if the one who invented communication communicates, one might presume that he has the ability to be clear. That's the doctrine of the perspicuity of God. I don't know why theologians can't just say the clarity of God, but it's called perspicuity. Now, I understand the motivation for many of these objections regarding what we're looking at here. What we hear often is, I know the Bible says that God predestines those who are saved to eternal life, but that's not what it means. Such is the response of our Arminian friends. And as I said, I understand the objections for that. I, I, I grew up in a church, I grew up in a perspective, in a theological persuasion where the ideas of God's election, predestination, Calvinism, foreknowledge were redefined to understand man's sovereignty and salvation to basically get God off the hook, to protect God. It was usually from a desire not to see God as a puppet master and us as puppets, or God as the grand engineer and us as robots. So sometimes it was used to to get God off the hook. Well, I know the Bible says that God predestines some, and it says he doesn't predestine all, and since we don't want God to look like he chose some and not others, we're going to redefine it. Well, that's a problem. The other side, though, and I understand the motivation. You don't want God to look bad in front of anyone that he chooses some and not others. Doesn't that seem, what's the word, unfair? And these objections always take on two forms. That's not fair, so I'm going to redefine what it means. Or I don't think that's what it means, so I'm going to supply a meaning that, that the biblical dictionaries, that the understanding of the day doesn't supply So we're going to look again into this text, and we find ourselves in the middle of looking at a chain link, a a link of chains, a chain of links, let's say it that way. And these are things that God has put in in the mind of the Apostle Paul that he is using, listen, to encourage us, not confuse us. We're looking specifically at five links in God's golden chain of salvation. Five links, they're all linked together, they're inseparable in God's golden chain of salvation. We looked at the first in our last study, and that is foreknown. We are foreknown. I'll just briefly remind you of what we looked at at the heart of the debate over the sovereignty of God in salvation are three main words, by the way. Foreknowledge, or foreknown, predestined, or predestination, and elect, or election. Now, This is what I find interesting. All three of these words, foreknown or foreknowledge, the the, the Greek sum of these words, predestined, election, or elect, all three of these words or forms of these three words are used within five verses here in Romans 8. All three of them. Two of them in the same verse. We looked uh, in our last study at the word foreknown, and if I could summarize that, Many would would try to trade the idea of foreknown for the word foresight. And the idea is God has foresight. He sees who will choose him, and those are the ones he predestines. In, In that scheme, then, it's really not about God choosing anyone or predestining anyone. It's about man doing that and God responding. He's the responder to that. The central issue here in foreknowledge is that an individual's faith is either the cause or the result 
of God's predestination. You understand that? It's the cause or the result of God's predestination. In the Arminian view, uh, it's, the, it's the cause. Man's faith, God sees in the future, that faith that he has by himself causes God, who sees outside of time in eternity past, to now choose and predestine. The other side, which I think is the more biblical side, is that it's the result of God's predestination. The only reason that you and I believe is because God makes us believe. He opens our heart. He quickens the dead. He opens the ears and the eyes of anyone who would believe. He says, we have been foreknown. Look back at verse 29 for a moment. Those whom he foreknew. Those. He pulls out these people. These are those. The those is also connected to verse 28. These are the ones to whom all things work together for good. And these are also the ones who are prayed for in the previous passage. These are also the ones, if you go back up in the text, who are experiencing suffering in this world with a different perspective than others who don't know God. Verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's stepping back and he's saying, I know life is difficult. I know life is full of challenges. I know life is full of trials. In the midst of that, I want to give you some theological pillars, some moorings, so that you're not discouraged. He starts by saying, listen, you were foreknown, foreloved, loved before the world even began. That leads us to number two, and this is what we're going to spend our time on today, predestined. Predestined. (coughs) For those whom he foreknew, these people, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren. Let's start with a disclaimer. Ready? I cannot answer every question or solve every problem your mind has about the doctrine of predestination. I was um, studying last night, and I just kind of almost laughed out loud to think, because I was trying to be so clear, and every sentence I I weighed, and every quote I, I measured, I was trying to be so clear. And then I caught myself thinking, not arrogantly, I think just hopefully, I think I can explain it in a way that would, then I stopped and I said, hopefully it'd be helpful, but it's not gonna solve every night or solve every problem. Can you imagine if on Mission Road, on July, end of July, in a, in a balmy, rainy Sunday morning, your pastor solved the enigma of predestination? And we were all here to witness it. Well, I hate to disappoint you. That is not going to happen. My goal is simply to let Paul help us worship better. That's what he's doing. He's helping us. He's encouraging us. He wants us to worship better, more informed. Sam Storms talks about predestination and foreknowledge, and he says this. Predestination is not synonymous with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge foreknowledge focuses on the distinguishing love of God whereby people are elected. Remember we said it's foreknown or foreloved. Predestination points to the decision God made concerning what he intended to do with those he foreknew. Then I love this definition. Predestination is that act in eternity past in which 
God ordained or decreed that those on whom he had set his saving love would inherit eternal life. Can I read that again? Predestination is that act in eternity past in which God ordained or decreed that those on whom he had set his saving love would indeed inherit eternal life. Now, I want to say something before we talk about this word for the next few minutes. I find it striking. I find it overwhelming. I find it curious to notice that Paul mentions this word, talks about this doctrine, gives us the information about predestination by only mentioning it. Look back at your text. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Does anyone have a footnote number right there? A parenthesis? Does anyone have a, see the end of the Bible where Paul will give you an excursus and an appendix on this doctrine? Is it not alarming and amazing that he just says it? We spend all this time trying to unscramble this egg and Paul just says he predestined. That says something not only about the mind of Paul, that tells us something about the mind of God who is inspiring Paul. Paul and Luke, in the book of Acts, use the term, the verb, to predestine when describing matters that God has predetermined, pre-chosen, and pre-arranged. But never is this word given any kind of footnote explanation. It's just used, which is why I think so many, people, so many people want to say, well, I know the Bible says that we are predestined, but this is what it means, or it doesn't mean what it looks like it means. Let's do a little uh, study here. The word is used six times in the New Testament, two of which are here in Romans 29 and 30. So this is two of the, of the six usages. It's used four other times. Let me just give you a quick uh, flyover of those other four times that this Greek verb for predestined is used. Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of, people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So let's stop right here. Whatever predestined means, Luke uses it here in this context in Acts 4 to tell us that predestination was a part of God's economical decision-making. It was a part of his decision-making process that actually caused the cross to happen. And we have to be consistent here. If someone says, well, predestination or foreknowledge is God looking down the corridors of time, seeing what happened, and then making a response, is that really what we want to say about the cross? They looked down and saw that maybe they would need a savior, so I guess I'll have plan B and send my son. What does that do to the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world? So whatever we're gonna say about predestination with a person in terms of the meaning of the word, we have to understand that the Holy Spirit used the same word to talk about the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 
Yet we do speak <coughs> wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. This is really insightful. He's talking about the gospel. And he describes it in terms of a mystery. And this mystery includes the term predestination. So we have to pull over for a second and say, whatever we understand about predestination, if we think we fully understand it, we've now undermined the very terminology that the Holy Spirit uses by calling it a mystery. I'm giving myself an out by not having to figure it all out today. And then, obviously, the next two are in Ephesians, which you know very well. Ephesians 1.5. He, God, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Listen to that again as if it were the first time you'd ever heard it. He predetermined, pre-chose, predestinationed, predestined. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Now we find out the motivation. It's just this little phrase that Paul gives us, the motivation behind God's predestinating work. It was the kind intention of his will. It was the kind intention of God's will to save some of the all who were destined for hell because of sin. Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained our inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. That is such a loaded passage. Everything God does is according to purpose. Everything he does is according to his will. He has never had an accidental thing happen in the history of his universe. Let's back up one step from that, from these four, usage, these four other usages besides Romans 8, these six usages. The word is not, a, is not a difficult word to define. The Greek word means to predetermine. Predestined, predetermined. Pre-trajectory. Send something or someone in a certain direction. And again, we go back to Acts. It was used of the cross. It was God's plan from the very beginning, from the, from the very first uh, uh, proto-evangelium in Genesis 3 where... He provided a sacrifice for those first parents of ours all the way through to now. It was never an accident. And if the cross was predestined by God and our salvation is predestined by God, those must mean the same thing. But again, backing up one step, man, as we studied over and over and over, is completely sinful and incapable of understanding and coming to God in our own intuition, from our own instinct, from our own conjuring or figuring out or intellectual capabilities. Therefore, in order for anyone's salvation to occur, God must intervene. He must predestine. It can be no other way. If this is so, then there ought to be verses to support that. Well, just hold on very tight. I'm going to go really quick. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many 
as had been appointed to eternal life. It's a passive verb. Had been appointed means someone appointed them. Obviously God. We looked at it over and over. John chapter one, verse 12. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There's man's responsibility is to believe. Who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. No one believes outside of God's predestined, predetermined will. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. It's been granted to us to believe. Ephesians 1.5, we just read it. He predestined us to adoption. And again, Ephesians 1.11, we've obtained this inheritance having been predestined to it. I'm gonna give you two quick lists. When you look at God, when you look at us, when you look at God's responsibility and God's power, when you look at our responsibility and our sinfulness, when you read the Bible cover to cover, these are some of the things that you find. God draws people to himself. John 6, and 6, Jesus says, God draws those who would be saved to himself. Psalm 51, God creates a clean heart. Remember what David said? Create a clean heart within me. God is the one who appoints people to believe. We just read it in Acts 13, 48. God works faith in the believer, John 6, 28 and following. God chooses who is to be holy and blameless, Ephesians 1.4. God chooses who is to be saved, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. God grants the act of believing, Philippians 1.29. God grants repentance in 2 Timothy 2.24. God calls according to his purpose, 2 Timothy 1.9. God causes us to be born again to a living hope, 1 Peter 1.3. God predestines us to salvation, Romans 8.29 30. God predestines us to adoption, Ephesians 1.5. God predestines us according to his purpose, Ephesians 1.11. God makes us born again, not by our own will, but by his, as we read in John 1.12 and 13. God is the one who authors salvation, which is good news. Very good news if you understand man's plight and man's situation. If you are looking to the Bible to get moral self-esteem, you really come to the wrong book. This is what the Bible says about us. I hope you have your seatbelt on. Our heart is deceitful and desperately sick in Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are full of evil, Mark 7, 21 and 23. Man loves darkness rather than light, John three nineteen. Man is unrighteous and does not understand and does not even seek after God. Romans 3, 10 and 12. Man is helpless and ungodly, Romans 5, 6. Man is dead and his trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. He is by nature a child of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. He cannot understand spiritual realities or things, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. And as we studied in Romans 6, we are born slaves to sin. When I was... Um, in my first year of seminary, I, I, I showed up really not knowing, 
shouldn't say what I believed. I didn't know that I believed that I believed, if that makes sense. I didn't understand what, I couldn't look objectively at my, my theological grid or construct. I was in a, <coughs> a theology class, and afterwards, we were studying this doctrine of uh, election and predestination and foreknowledge. And I was having serious trouble with it. And the trouble, looking back on it now, was, could be specifically defined as, well, I know the Bible says that, but that can't be what it means. That would make God sovereign. That would make God in absolute control. That would rob me of my own free will. And I was troubled. I remember throwing around phrases like, well, I'm a Calvinist, but I'm a three and a half point Calvinist. And I didn't know which three I claimed and which one and a half I didn't, but it sure sounded like I was uh, keeping my feet on both sides of the fence. And there was a senior, his name was Rick, Rick Anderson, just took me under his wing. and He saw that I was struggling. He saw my, my, my resistance to this doctrine. And he said, hey, can I take you out for a Coke? This was really before coffee shops came around. We used to go out for carbonated beverages. Imagine that. Went down to Carl's Jr., which is a Hardee's, and we sat, and he says, why, why do you have trouble with God being sovereign? Well, I don't have trouble with God being sovereign. And he just kind of smiled and let me go. He says, then why, why is he not sovereign in, in salvation? I again, gave him some answers, and he says, I don't think your problem is the sovereignty of God, and he was right. He said, I think your problem is you don't see yourself as as bad as you do, as you really are. And he was right again. In God's providence, you know what the next theology class with Dr. George Zimmick was? The depravity of man. And I remember after that class, we went out for our second carbonated beverage, our Coke, down at, at Carl's Jr., and I was overwhelmed. I had never really fully grasped the fact that if I am dead in my trespasses and sins before a holy God, if I really am wicked to the core, if my heart only knows sinful, that doesn't mean that you are utterly sinful, meaning we can sin in every way we could. It means we are totally inclined to sin. And even our righteousness, is, as Isaiah says, is filthy rags. It doesn't please God. And I really remember specifically where I was sitting in that restaurant thinking, this has to be true, not only because God says he's sovereign, it has to be true if I am dead in my trespasses and sins. How can a dead man wake himself up? So I really believe that most people's resistance to the idea that God is sovereign in salvation is not as much a problem of God being sovereign and in charge as it is giving ourselves too much credit and being objective and being able to make these decisions which we're not. Now, let's take a, another little detour because I know what you're thinking, I know what you're asking, and if you're not doing it now, you have before. Hang on, Rick, Paul, Bible, God. Hang on a second. If God predestines some, doesn't that mean he did not predestine others? Said another way, 
if God is in control of everything and predestines some to salvation, does that automatically infer and logically conclude that he predestines some to reprobation, to hell, to damnation? It's a good question. Have you had that question before? Boy, I have. I've laid in bed just racking my brain over that question before. Let me first say that the idea of God predestining people to hell is a conclusion, it's called the doctrine of reprobation, is a conclusion that is based on logic, not on exegesis. That's another way of saying, are you willing to to believe things that you cannot fully understand? There are verses that are clear that God gives people the responsibility to believe. No question. But are there any verses that say that God predestines some to hell? Well, there's really one main verse that those who, who uh, preach this doctrine of reprobation, that God double predestines some to, some to heaven and some to hell use. It's 1 Peter 2.8. You're welcome to look there if you want to. It's a, it's a very interesting passage. And what they anchor this supposed exegetical reason for double predestination on is really only a, a subordinate clause in this, this verse, an important subordinate clause, though. He's talking about Jesus being the stone in 1 Peter 1, 8. He's the, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 8. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble, unbelievers, because they are disobedient to the word. Whose responsibility is that? The unbeliever. But then here's where the kicker comes in. And to this doom they were also predestined or appointed. What does this mean? Does it mean that they were predestined to the doom? Closer look at the verse indicates that those who reject Christ stumble and suffer divine judgment because they are disobedient to the word. Do you see it right there in the text? It's clearly man's responsibility to be obedient to what God has said and revealed. My mentor, John MacArthur, says this. Unbelievers receive the exact judgment their sinful choice demands. Their sinful choice demands. To this doom they were also appointed because they do not believe and obey the gospel. God does not actively destine people to unbelief. Did you hear that? Couldn't agree more. God does not actively destine people, predestinate them to unbelief. But he does appoint judgment or doom on every unbeliever. God judges unbelievers as a consequence for their lack of love for him, their disbelief their disobedience to his word and their refusal to believe in him. Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be judged or accursed, end quote. So the only verse that people can hang on to to say, see, God appoints them to this doom, in the same verse says, no, the the doom is the judgment and the reason is the disobedience and disbelief to the word. So here's where you have to land if you're gonna be honest with the text. Logically, logically, I understand if God chooses some and doesn't choose others and God is an active uh, divine being, does that mean he's active and his active not choosing is a choice? I understand that logic. Logically, double predestination makes sense. But no text of scripture 
teaches that that's true. So let's go back. Are you willing to believe things that you cannot understand? Before you say no, do you believe in the Trinity? How does that work? Do you have one God or three? Oh, I have one. How many persons? Three. So the person, singular, of the God has three persons. Yes. How many gods? One. How many persons? Three. And you just get in this cycle. Do, do you believe that? I hope so. Do you understand it? If you can, would you have lunch with me? I would love to hear it. And I, I know that you know the egg illustration. I know you know the water illustration. Those all fall at the end. Are you willing to believe the Bible <clears throat> over human logic? I understand I have been accused as someone who's of the Calvinistic persuasion. I have been accused over and over. You, uh, you, are, you, you believe in double predestination, that God predestines some to heaven, he predestines others to hell. That is a logical conclusion. It is not a biblical conclusion. And I'm okay keeping this with some tension that the Bible doesn't resolve. Arthur Custance gives an interesting illustration. I wanna read this to you talking about culpability, I thought, found it very helpful. <clears throat> he says, suppose 10 men are in prison, justly incarcerated for crimes of which they are proven guilty. And let us suppose for the sake of simplicity that each man has committed a similar crime. Let us further suppose that the governor of the state or the premier of the province in which they are prisoners has the right to grant a reprieve for one of those men. Since all of the men are in prison with equal justification, the choice of the one to be set free is, from the point of justice, an indifferent one. All are equally guilty, and any one of them might therefore be granted the reprieve with equal justification. None are less guilty or more guilty. Then he goes on. For reasons not in any way related to the individual's worthiness or unworthiness, but in some way reflecting the, governor, the governor's good pleasure, reprieve is granted to one man, and this man is set free. Now it must be asked, why are the remaining prisoners still in jail? Is it really because they weren't released it might at first appear to be so, but in actual fact, these other nine men would all be set free if they had fulfilled their term in prison. The reason they are not all set free is that they have not all yet paid the full penalty, penalty for their misconduct. The nine who are left in prison are therefore in prison still, not because they were not reprieved, hear the double negative, but because they were put in prison for their crimes and have not yet been satisfied the demands of justice. The release of the one reprieved man has no bearing on the retention of the other nine. The reprieved man owes his freedom entirely to the graciousness of the one who has authorized it, and the retention of the other, other men in prison is owing entirely to their own guilt, end quote. A little complicated, but it's really helpful. <clears throat> if these men are in prison and the governor sets one free, are the others who are in prison 
in prison because they weren't set free or because of their crime. They're there because of their crime. We have to have a robust understanding of the depravity of man to be accurate biblically. Our starting point is every man is deserving of and owning to a destination of hell because of our sin. That God would choose anyone from the the wrath that we incur ourselves is nothing but, we sing it all the time, amazing grace. Now back to our text. We're going to have more to say about this when we get to the term elect, and we're going to talk about this a lot in chapter 9, so just know that we're coming back to it. We need to proceed very carefully at this point because it's easy to do what we just did, which is to be distracted over the word predestined when Paul doesn't get distracted. He just uses it. The point Paul is making is not to unknot a theological quagmire. There's a purpose for predestination, and it's listed right here in our text. The purpose of God's predestination of a person is clearly spelled out in the phrase that follows the word, namely, to be conformed to the image of his son. I think the enemy of our soul is so clever at getting us distracted at the theological intricacies of predestination without seeing the glory that we're predestined to be like Jesus. He has pre-appointed us Towards sanctification, someone is asking this list, this golden chain of of, um, salvation. Well, where's sanctification in there? Why isn't sanctification in this list? It's right here. To be conformed from our image to the image of the Son of God, of Jesus. That's sanctification. And there's something else. This is so sweet. Remember that grammatically, Verses 29 and 30 are a subordinate explanation, remember the word for, to verse 28. When we read all things work together for our good to the ones who love God, those called according to his purpose, what does it mean that it works out for our good? Does it mean the problems go away? Well, how's that worked out for you? Does it mean that pain ceases? How's that work out for you? Does it mean that tragedy stops? Does it mean that cancer goes away and, and that things that are undesired and unexpected suddenly evaporate? Is that what it means? No, no, no. All things work together for our good. Our greatest good is answered in verse 29 and 30. It's conformity to the image of Christ. This good is the conformity to Christ. It's in reference to our position before God. We are saved. We are satisfied before God because of the death of Christ. Our sanctification, becoming like Jesus, that's the best good that we can accomplish in this world. Our future glorification, that's where this passage ends. Jesus being the firstborn among many brethren. That means firstborn among the the dead. He rose from the grave. He offers us that same living hope. The believer's ultimate conformity to the image of Christ will be realized at that great day. We've read it already in Romans 6, 5. If we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what that phrase means. Firstborn among many brethren. 
It's all about our good. Our predestination is for our good. Our predestination is to be like Christ, which is the greatest good in this world, and it will be the greatest good when we're like him in the resurrection in eternity. So much in here. Paul is careful to use the word many. Many brethren, that's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in which all nations were to be blessed. And don't miss the implied reference to sanctification here. We're conformed to the image of Christ to imitate his morality, to imitate his worship of the Father, to imitate his dependence on the Spirit. So let me just say again, we're we're going to... for the, between now and Christmas, basically, or the next six months, we're going to keep studying this, this issue because Paul keeps talking about it. But can we just stop and pause and, and, and ask, what are our takeaways from this doctrine, from this passage? Let me give you a few takeaways, I don't know, half a dozen or so. First, the divine author does not demonstrate the need to provide any explanation or footnotes when talking about this issue. Make note of that. I almost feel like I, I do a disservice to spending you know, 40 minutes talking about this doctrine without taking it just like Paul did. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. That's all he says. But it is worth our careful inquiry. A second takeaway, Paul's intention, please remember this. We're gonna get to this next, next week. Paul's intention in referencing predestination is to bolster confidence, security, and joy and comfort. It is not to create novelty, suspicion, or debate. Let me just give you a head start. He's saying, ultimately, our good is conformity to the image of Christ, which will be in glorification. That's the the last of the golden link he uses. We can be as sure of our glorification as we are of our predestination. And we can be as sure of our predestination as we are of our glorification. He links them together for our comfort. He doesn't talk about predestination to bring us confusion and fear, but to provide assurance and peace. Another takeaway. God's sovereignty and salvation is not as difficult to understand as it is to accept. I don't think the problem with a lot of people is they don't understand this issue. I think a problem with some people is they don't like this issue or this doctrine. You can't go back and rewrite the first century dictionaries on the word predestined and say, well, now we know better. Now our theological sensibilities are sophisticated enough not to think of God as sovereign in salvation. No, it means what it says, and it says exactly what it means. Those who resist this doctrine, typically it's not because they don't understand it, it's because they don't like it. Another takeaway, there are many things in theology that are difficult, but understanding does not, not understanding it does not make it untrue. In other words, you, if you really are going to hold God, the infinite mind of God hostage to your own understanding, that's the apex of pride and arrogance. Secret things belong to the Lord. 
His ways are not our ways. And then the, that passage in Psalm 50, you, God says, your problem is you thought I was like you. And then the sovereignty of God in salvation must be a vivid reminder of our spiritual deadness and sinfulness apart from Christ. I was talking to a high schooler at camp a few weeks ago about this issue. We were sitting on a little golf cart, which they provided for me to walk around and to drive around. He was asking me about this, and he asked the question that I've asked many times, but it was so wonderfully phrased. He says, how can I, how can I make sure I'm predestined? I, I want to I be elect. I, I want to be, pre- how, how can I make sure of that? Did you know that that's, that's a question and an answer that was given in the Bible? You have to see this. First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter 1. You have to see this. You might want to mark this. This is, this is really interesting real estate in God's word. And it will bring us back to the mystery in such a sweet way. Peter says, Second Peter chapter 1, his second epistle, verse 2. <coughs> Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. And of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Then this passage you know well. Now for this very purpose, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. See the sanctification there? They They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, verse 10, after all that list, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Whoa, hang on. That's the question my high school friend asked. How can I know that I've been chosen? Peter says, make sure you were chosen. How do I do that, Peter? Next phrase. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. You see it? Do you see it? You believe and obey. And only the one who believes and obeys is the one who's chosen. We don't go around in evangelism and say, uh, uh, excuse me, I have a question. Are you predestined? Have you been elect? Do you know the Calvinist handshake? We don't ask those questions. We tell people to believe. And those who believe, we say obey. And Peter says, that's how you know that you've been chosen. Do you believe? Will you obey? It's that simple. He doesn't leave us in a mysterious fog to say, well, I guess this is true. I'm not going to think about it anymore. He says, no, believe and obey. 
the greatest summary of all of this. You're going to hear this, this verse a lot in the next few months. At the end of this entire discussion with the sovereignty of God and salvation, the sovereignty of God in Israel, the sovereignty of God over the nations, in Romans 11.33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul steps back and just says, Wow, just wow, how unsearchable unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable. That means there's no way to find the bottom of this pond. Unfathomable are his ways. You know what that tells us? You and I will study this for the rest of eternity and never say, I got it. I get it. But for the rest of eternity, we will look and say, what riches, what depth, that God would raise a wicked, dead sinner's heart like mine. That's the conclusion. And if he predestined us, ah, next week, next week, he will glorify us. The one who has begun a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe? Will you obey? That's the question. Do you believe the gospel? Will you obey the Lord of the gospel? That's where we land, not, well, I've got all of these, these knots untied and this egg unscrambled and I can figure it out. You just have to say, what, what, what depth, what amazing wisdom of God. Your election and your predestination are to make you conform to the image of Christ. The only ultimate takeaway from this is this. Am I applying all of my efforts toward being conformed to be like Jesus? That's the takeaway. It's right in the verse. Let's pray together. I can't really conclude any better than saying that, Father. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, and your ways are unsearchable. Your judgments are unfathomable. No way to get to the depths of them except to stand back and say, what a God, what a God, who would offer salvation to sinners who would believe. I pray for the the saints in the room who need so desperately to have a good breath of this air, to breathe it in deeply, that we are called and predestined. You have targeted us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Convict us and show us in the ways we need to climb that ladder to be like him. And Father, of someone who's an unbeliever, please, if, please don't let anyone get tripped up on seeing whether or not they were predestined, but to do what Peter said to make sure of our choice by you by simply believing and obeying. Cause these mysterious truths to pull us like a gravitational force toward you in worship and in wonder and in amazement, not in debate or suspicion, 
or doubt. Thank you for revealing this to us. I'm just humbled. I'm just amazed that you just use the word and go to the next phrase as if to say, believe it. So Lord, we have little faith. Help our faith. We have trouble believing. Cause us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.